Section three of Basil. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Basil by Wilkie Collins. Section three. Part one. Chapter three. I always considered my father, I speak of him in the past tense, because we are now separated for ever, because he is henceforth as dead to me as if the grave had closed over him. I always considered my father to be the proudest man I ever knew, the proudest man I ever heard of. His was not that conventional pride which the popular notions are fond of characterizing by a stiff, stately carriage by a rigid expression of features, by a hard, severe intonation of voice, by set speeches of contempt for poverty and rags, and rhapsodical braggadocio about rank and breeding. My father's pride had nothing of this about it. It was that quiet, negative, courteous, inbred pride, which only the closest observation could detect, which no ordinary observers ever detected at all. Who that observed him in communication with any of the farmers on any of his estates, who that saw the manner in which he lifted his hat when he accidentally met any of those farmers' wives, who that noticed his hearty welcome to the man of the people when that man happened to be a man of genius, would have thought him proud. On such occasions as these, if he had any pride, it was impossible to detect it. But seeing him when, for instance, an author and a new-made peer of no ancestry, entered his house together, observing merely the entirely different manner in which he shook hands with each, remarking that the polite cordiality was all for the man of letters, who did not contest his family rank with him, and the polite formality all for the man of title who did, you discovered where and how he was proud in an instant. Here lay his fretful point. The aristocracy of rank, as separate from the aristocracy of ancestry, was no aristocracy for him. He was jealous of it. He hated it. Commoner though he was, he considered himself the social superior of any man from a baronet up to a duke, whose family was less ancient than his own. Among a host of instances of this peculiar pride of his, which I could cite, I remember one, characteristic enough to be taken as a sample of all the rest. It happened when I was quite a child, and was told me by one of my uncles, now dead, who witnessed the circumstance himself, and always made a good story of it to the end of his life. A merchant of enormous wealth, who had recently been raised to the peerage, was staying at one of our country houses. His daughter, my uncle, and an Italian abbe were the only guests besides. The merchant was a portly purple-faced man, who bore his new honours with a curious mixture of assumed pomposity and natural good-humour. The abbe was dwarfish and deformed, lean, sallow, sharp-featured, with bright bird-like eyes and a low, liquid voice. He was a political refugee, dependent for the bread he ate, on the money he received for teaching languages. He might have been a beggar from the streets, and still my father would have treated him as the principal guest in the house, for this all-sufficient reason. He was a direct descendant of one of the oldest of those famous Roman families whose names are part of the history of the civil wars in Italy. 
On the first day, the party assembled for dinner comprised the merchant's daughter, my mother, an old lady who had once been her governess, and had always lived with her since her marriage, the new lord, the abbe, my father, and my uncle. When dinner was announced, the peer advanced in new-blown dignity to offer his arm as a matter of course to my mother. My father's pale face flushed crimson in a moment. He touched the magnificent merchant lord on the arm and pointed significantly, with a low bow, towards the decrepit old lady who had once been my mother's governess. Then walking to the other end of the room, where the penniless abbe was looking over a book in a corner, he gravely and courteously led the little deformed limping language-master, clad in a long threadbare black coat, up to my mother, whose shoulder the abbe's head hardly reached, held the door open for them to pass out first with his own hand, politely invited the new nobleman, who stood half paralyzed between confusion and astonishment, to follow with a tottering old lady on his arm, and then returned to lead the peer's daughter down to dinner himself. He only resumed his wonted expression and manner when he had seen the little abbey, the squalid, half-starved representative of mighty barons of the olden time, seated at the highest place of the table by my mother's side. It was by such accidental circumstances as these that you discovered how far he was proud. He never boasted of his ancestors, he never even spoke of them except when he was questioned on the subject, but he never forgot them. They were the very breath of his life, the deities of his social worship, the family treasures to be held precious beyond all lands and all wealth, all ambitions and all glories, by his children and his children's children to the end of their race. In home life he performed his duties toward his family honorably, delicately, and kindly. I believe in his own way he loved us all, but we, his descendants, had to share his heart with his ancestors. We were his household property, as well as his children. Every fair liberty was given to us, every fair indulgence was granted to us. He never displayed any suspicion or any undue severity. We were taught by his direction that to disgrace our family either by word or action was the one fatal crime which could never be forgotten and never be pardoned. We were formed under his superintendence in principles of religion, honor, and industry, and the rest was left to our own moral sense, to our own comprehension of the duties and privileges of our station. There was no one point in his conduct towards any of us that we could complain of, and yet there was something always incomplete in our domestic relations. It may seem incomprehensible, even ridiculous to some persons, but it is nevertheless true that we were none of us ever on intimate terms with him. I mean by this that he was a father to us, but never a companion. There was something in his manner, his quiet and unchanging manner, which kept us almost unconsciously restrained. I never in my life felt less at my ease, I knew not why at the time, than when I occasionally dined alone with him. I never confided to him my schemes for amusement as a boy, or mentioned more than generally my ambitious hopes as a young man. It was not that he would have received such confidences with ridicule or severity, he was incapable of it, but that he seemed above them, unfitted to enter into them, too far removed by his own thoughts from such thoughts as ours. 
Thus, all holiday councils were held with old servants. Thus, my first pages of manuscript, when I first tried authorship, were read by my sister, and never penetrated into my father's study. Again, his mode of testifying displeasure towards my brother or myself had something terrible in its calmness, something that we never forgot, and always dreaded, as the worst calamity that could befall us. Whenever, as boys, we committed some boyish fault, he never displayed outwardly any irritation. He simply altered his manner towards us altogether. We were not soundly lectured, or vehemently threatened, or positively punished in any way. But when we came in contact with him, we were treated with a cold, contemptuous politeness, especially if our fault showed a tendency to anything mean or ungentlemanlike, which cut us to the heart. On these occasions we were not addressed by our Christian names. If we accidentally met him out of doors, he was sure to turn aside and avoid us. If we asked a question, it was answered in the briefest possible manner, as if we had been strangers. His whole course of conduct said, as though in so many words, You have rendered yourselves unfit to associate with your father, and he is now making you feel that unfitness as deeply as he does. We were left in this domestic purgatory for days, sometimes for weeks together. To our boyish feelings, to mine especially, there was no ignominy like it, while it lasted. I know not on what terms my father lived with my mother. Towards my sister his demeanour always exhibited something of the old-fashioned, affectionate gallantry of a former age. He paid her the same attention that he would have paid to the highest lady in the land. He led her into the dining-room when we were alone, exactly as he would have led a duchess into a banqueting-hall. He would allow us as boys to quit the breakfast-table before he had risen himself, but never before she had left it. If a servant failed in duty towards him, the servant was often forgiven. If towards her, the servant was sent away on the spot. His daughter was in his eyes the representative of her mother, the mistress of his house, as well as his child. It was curious to see the mixture of high-bred courtesy and fatherly love in his manner, as he just gently touched her forehead with his lips when he first saw her in the morning. In person, my father was of not more than middle height. He was very slenderly and delicately made, his head small and well set on his shoulders, his forehead more broad than lofty, his complexion singularly pale, except in moments of agitation, when I have already noticed its tendency to flush all over in an instant. His eyes, large and grey, had something commanding in their look. They gave a certain unchanging firmness and dignity to his expression, not often met with. They betrayed his birth and breeding, his old ancestral prejudices, his chivalrous sense of honour in every glance. It required, indeed, all the masculine energy of look about the upper part of his face to redeem the lower part from an appearance of effeminacy, so delicately was it moulded in its fine Norman outline. His smile was remarkable for its sweetness. It was almost like a woman's smile. In speaking, too, his lips often trembled as women's do. If he ever laughed as a young man, his laugh must have been very clear and musical, but since I can recollect him, I never heard it. 
in his happiest moments, in the gayest society, I have only seen him smile. There were other characteristics of my father's disposition and manner which I might mention, but they will appear to greater advantage, perhaps, hereafter, connected with circumstances which especially called them forth. End of section 3, recorded by ALWPOE on January 3rd, 2011. ALWPOE.com